But it is a joy to be with all of you. Um, I know my family and I, we're, we're just grateful for the opportunity to, to be here and to be spurred along with you as we turn to God's Word. And, and I count it a privilege to be able to serve you in this small capacity. Um, your pastors are some of the pastors I hold in the highest regard. They're uh, trusted and close friends I have in the ministry and so uh, I go to them if I have any question or, or just need some encouragement. And, and what distinguishes them from a lot of other pastors, Sally, to say, is, is that they have um, a high view of God. I think that's evident for most of you that attend Pillar Church. They have a high view of God, and their desire is to pass that vision along to their congregants, that you too would behold who God is and allow that view so fully to seep into your hearts, that it would transform your lives. And so that's something that I have noticed and gleaned from uh, them as individuals and in their ministry. And the second thing would just be that they love the Word. Uh, Their high view of God is derived from uh, their love for the Word, from soaking their minds, saturating their hearts with what God says, what God speaks to us through His inerrant Word. So much so that uh, I think they were the first pastors to really impress upon me you know, the importance of even the Old Testament. Because a lot of times you, you might attend another church and, and uh, the New Testament is constantly being preached and, and heralded, and, and rightly so, but often sometimes to the neglect of the Old Testament. And we need to understand that the Old Testament builds us up towards the New Testament. And that's why this weekend we're going to actually look at God, not from the New Testament primarily, but from the Old Testament. And so when I got the invitation to, to speak at this retreat. Um, I knew that it, it was really a, a joy for me and a service to me to, to be invited to come. And, and in addition to all those things, the, the, the close relationships I have with the pastors and, and the affection that um, I already derived from them for, for your church, it was just a, a good opportunity to catch up with them. And, and your retreat, you know, it's, it's so short, simple, and sweet. You know, there's I don't think uh, I recall another retreat in which there was such a large slot of time for for free time. I was like, wow, this is going to be like vacation for for me and my family. So um, I had to uh, embrace that opportunity. But I understand why they do that. They do that because they want you to see that the priority is the service we have together, the preaching of God's word. And then they want to uh, give you ample time to digest that to fellowship over that in your conversations, to, to bathe uh, the time that you spend together, uh, stirring and, and sharpening one another towards godly things. And so um, I hope that you guys would, would take the initiative also to, to approach me and my family. Um, we, we're looking forward to getting to know you better and, and fellowshipping over what we'll hear from God's word in our times together. And so let me go ahead and pray for our session, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious and kind to us that you are a God who speaks. Lord, you have disclosed the grandeur of who you are through your word. And it is this gift, your precious, inerrant word, authoritative and clear, that brings us into the light, into your light, that we might know who you are in all your glory, in all the splendor of your attributes. And so, Father, fixate our minds, arrest our hearts with how good 
and kind you are, with how majestic and wonderful you are, that we would be captivated, that you give us new appetites, new affections, a new heart, that we'd be devoted wholly to you. Father, we pray that in our study of your attributes and your character through your word, that this would not mentally be a mental exercise, a, a cerebral activity, but it would pierce our hearts, unravel who we are, that you would mold us and make us more and more like your son. So we pray that this would be for our good and for your glory. We ask for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. A stubborn rebel against his prince, a venomous serpent before your eyes, and a spider dangling over a fire. These are the illustrations Jonathan Edwards employs to wake a city from their spiritual days. These are the images Edwards projected to paint the horror of hell, the wonder of heaven, and the beauty of God. In 1741 at Enfield, Connecticut, it was there Jonathan Edwards delivered his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so to begin and to ready our hearts, let me just read an excerpt of that sermon. He preached this, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you was suffered to wake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has upheld you. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. That's serious speech. What compelled Edwards to speak of the dire consequences of sin? What is it about God that spells such a serious predicament for sinners? The short answer is God is holy. God is holy. And this attribute of God consumed Edwards. It pressed so heavily upon his heart, it shaped all that he did from his pastoral ministry to his personal life. And in a day and age, the one we live in, where truth is relative, morals are muddy, and holiness is forgotten, we, as Christians, need to recapture a proper view of God and all His holiness. And this morning, we're going to do exactly that. 
We're going to examine a passage that brings this to full force. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8. So go ahead and turn there and follow along with me as I read this for us. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now for context's sake, Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets of Israel. I mean, his book in the Bible is the biggest one, weighing in at a a chubby 66 chapters. Isaiah lived during a time of crisis, a time when the Israelites were turning their backs on God, forsaking him. And during his lifetime, the Assyrians of foreign powerhouse came and took the northern kingdom captive. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, was in jeopardy of suffering the same fate. And Isaiah arrives on scene with a message from God. Repent. Repent and worship the true God. Chapter 6 is a monumental, a crucial chapter. Because in it, Isaiah sees the holiness of God and it changes him forever. Beloved, seeing God. Seeing God rightly for who he is, is everything. The Israelites were engrossed in sin, and the only cure for their wretched condition was a renewed vision of God. Look again at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Isaiah announces that what he is about to disclose occurs against the backdrop in the setting of King Uzziah's death. Now Uzziah, for the most part, he was a good king, linked and associated with King David himself. And under Uzziah's reign, Judah flourished and excelled. Uzziah ruled for 52 years, so he must have been doing something right. And for the most part, the people saw peace and prosperity. But towards the end of his life, Uzziah grew proud. And in 2 Chronicles 26, 19, what happens there is King Uzziah disobeys God and offers incense. You see, back then only priests were to offer incense. But Uzziah thought, well, I've been doing this king thing for a while, and I'm pretty awesome. I, 
I can surely offer incense and God won't mind. Before his presumption, God struck him with leprosy. King Uzziah was unclean, disqualified from the throne, isolated and left waiting for his skin condition to claim his life. His act of arrogance led to his fatal downfall. And now the people worry. 52 years and now our king is gone. Who will lead us? Who will protect us from our enemies? What will we do now that King Uzziah is dead? So in a year of mourning and confusion, it's then Isaiah sees the Lord. Do you see the comparison Isaiah is drawing for us? Against the backdrop of a great human king's death, there is a greater king, a divine king, an eternal king that will always rule in the year of King Uzziah's death. I saw the king that never dies. What Isaiah witnesses in the throne room is what the Israelites desperately needed. And it's what we desperately need. The older I get, the more convinced I am that what is essential for life is not higher self-esteem or greater attention to our own lives. We need a high view, a holy view of God in all his majestic glory, and then to allow that view to impact and transform everything about us. That's what happens to Isaiah as he comes into the presence of God. Isaiah pushes our gaze away from ourselves and onto the holiness of God. The vision Isaiah has transcends any scene on earth. We tread on holy ground. We are brought into the holy presence of God. And in verse 1, it tells us that the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. God sits on a throne exalted and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now we might wonder, what is this train? Well, if many of you have been to a wedding, it's like how you see a bride wearing her wedding gown with this extra material following her, this train in the back. It's a special garment that signals, hey, a special person is here. And when she walks down that aisle with her long train flowing, everyone immediately recognizes she is the most important person in the room. In this occasion, it's no different. God, God is the most important person in the room. And you know what's crazy about this scene? We're not even offered a description of what God looks like. We're merely told about his train. But it is one that fills the temple. Consider that. If the train be this massive, what does it say about the God who sits on the throne? You know, if you entered someone's house only to be smothered and suffocated by a huge sock, you know, if the only thing your eyes could behold was, was the bottom of a covered foot, I know as ridiculous as that picture may sound, one thing is evidently clear. You immediately realize how big this guy is and how small you are in comparison. In this throne room, the train conveys who Isaiah is coming before. This is a God unparalleled in massiveness and majesty. 
we discover angelic beings attest to God's greatness in verse 2. It says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. We're informed that present are seraphim. Literally, their names mean burning ones. Their name is derived from the same word for that flaming sword turning back and forth around the garden after Adam and Eve are expelled. So you can picture these fiery, blazing creatures above the throne with six wings. Two wings enabling them to fly. Two covering their faces because no one could look upon God and live. And two wings covering their feet, probably a sign of their creatureliness in the presence of the Creator God. From top to bottom, even the angelic beings recognize they are not worthy to see or be in the presence of God. Here's the sharp contrast, and you've got to feel this. The seraphim, the burning ones, must cover themselves from the burning glory of God. As beaming as they are, as sinless as they may be, they hide themselves in holy fear before the presence of God. Now make the connection. All of us, all of us, without exception, would be amazed and fearful if we've ever accounted a seraphim. We would bend the knee in homage to such a splendid creature. And if that be true, if that be true, then how much more so should we hide ourselves in holy fear if we come before God in all his splendor? This is a God, a God who causes the burning ones to peel back in humility and worship. But as incredible as the seraphim are, what's brought to focus is not what they look like, but what they sing. Listen to their song, beginning in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The way we speak is determined by the setting we're in. You know, if you're just hanging out with friends, your, your vocabulary is more conversational, colloquial. But if you're giving a presentation at work, your speech is more polished, sophisticated. If you need proof of this, just think of your pastors. You know, when you're with them at lunch or at a game, they use a lot more slang, right? It's coo this and foo that. <laughs> you laugh in agreement. But in an informal setting, they're just themselves. But something happens when they step into the pulpit. All of a sudden, their getaways are gone. All of a sudden... Their talk is refined and eloquent. They use SAT words, and their grammar is proper. <laughs> Any hint of their urbanness is removed from their speech, except for maybe Pastor Dave, but I've just come to accept that's, that's, that's who he is. That's who he is. Now, all kidding aside, why this sudden change? Well, because speech is a reflection of the situation. Preaching and proclaiming God's truth 
is serious business. And when you step into the pulpit, you speak as a mouthpiece of holy God. And that is a dignified privilege. And that's the impression your pastors want to leave on you. So much so that it affects even the way they communicate. Certain rules of language are in play based upon the circumstance. The seraphim, they find themselves in a sobering circumstance before the presence of God. And he is so glorious, it affects and touches even their words. In the Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. If you wanted to stress the prominence of something, you reiterated it. And the seraphim here are reaching for words to convey the crushing weight of God's holiness. It is not fitting to declare it just once or twice. God is thrice holy. They are hammering it home. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. I'm sure many of you know this is the only attribute of God ever repeated three times. Now, if holiness is such a dominant quality, it is imperative we understand what it means. And that's when we run into a problem. Because when we contemplate what it means for God to be holy, we have a hard time defining it. You know, we can think of words closely associated with holiness, but we find it difficult telling someone what holiness actually means. Maybe our minds think of being set apart, of being completely devoted to God. And there's scriptural warrant for that. Or maybe we think holiness deals with morality, having a high ethical standard. After all, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But if we substitute either of these concepts in, we'd still find them lacking. The angels aren't gathered in the throne room booming, separate, separate, separate is the Lord God, or moral, moral, moral is the Lord God. Each fails to completely capture what it means to be holy. Certainly they may be part of the meaning, but not exhaustive. My good friend, unknown to him, John Piper, helps us understand. This is a a long quote, but track along because... I think it really elucidates what holiness means. He says, quote, The word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into a vast unknown. Holiness carries us to the brink. And from there on, the experience of God is beyond words. He continues, the reason I say this is that every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying, God is holy means God is God. Let me illustrate. The root meaning of holy is probably to cut or separate. A holy thing is cut off from and separated from common use. Earthly things and persons are holy as they are distinct from the world and devoted to God. So the Bible speaks of holy ground, holy assemblies, holy Sabbath, a holy nation, holy garments, holy city, holy men and women, holy scriptures, holy hands, and a holy faith. Almost anything can become holy if it is separated from the common and devoted to God. But notice what happens when this definition is applied to God himself. 
From what can you separate God to make Him holy? The very Godness of God means He is separate from all that is not God. There is an infinite qualitative difference between Creator and creature. God is one of a kind, sui generis, in a class by Himself. In that sense, He is utterly holy. But then you have said no more than that He is God. End quote. See, at the heart of it, the word holy is essentially synonymous with being God. When the seraphim proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, what they are crying out and exclaiming is, you are God, you are God, you are God, and you alone. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is no one like you. God is God. He is unique. He is transcendent. He is matchless. There is no other. Church, not even you. Not even me. Thus, when we are called to be holy, we are called to be His. We are to show in morality, in devotion, in everything. Show by the life we live that He is the only true God worthy of it all. Now the angel's song, verse 4, tells us the foundations of the temple shake and smoke fills the whole place. Left and right, natural disasters are breaking out. And it must have terrified Isaiah to witness all of this. The cry of the seraphim and the truth of their proclamation leaves nothing unshaken. What about you? As you read this passage, as you take in this grand scene, the question launched towards you is, Will you be the only object in this setting, unshaken, unmoved by the holiness of God? Isaiah responds. He responds in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is not forced. He's not mechanical. His soul is soaring. His heart pounding. And his only reply is, woe is me. And you have to understand this. Woe is me is a curse. A calling for self-damnation. You know how serious this phrase is? Jesus reserves this condemnation in the New Testament for his enemies for the most evil and wretched of people. He condemns pagan cities. Woe to you. He charges the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you. But Isaiah, a messenger of God, is condemning himself. Woe is me. God, curse me. Let me be damned, for I am lost. I am undone. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And what drives such a confession? What causes Isaiah, a prophet of God, to self-damnation? Look at how verse 5 ends. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's fronted to make us feel the significance of Isaiah's vision. The King, the Lord of hosts, this great and holy God, my eyes have seen. 
Where's the application? Well, it's very simple. We are creatures of comparison. We compare our homes, our salary, our popularity with other people to get an idea of what place we're in or where we're at. We compare with others even to gauge the kind of person we are. And so we'll say, well, I'm not as bad as that person because she cusses. Or I'm a pretty good person because I don't steal or cheat. Look at that person. He does drugs or he drinks. Everyone plays this game, right? The murderer thinks he's better than the rapist, and the rapist thinks he's better than the murderer. And the truth is, you can always find someone you're better than. But no one, no one can match up to God. When someone tells you to jump to the moon, who cares how much higher you can jump than another person? Because in the end, ultimately, you both fail miserably. Isaiah is pointing us higher. Don't look next to you. Look to the one who reigns above you. You are not accountable to where you stand with other people. You and I are accountable to where we stand before God. Isaiah sees the vast divide between God's holiness and his sinfulness, and it leaves him floored. He is devastated by the reality that he can never measure up. The angels announce, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Isaiah feels his heart thumping. I am unholy, unholy, unholy. Beloved, when you are gripped by the perfection, holiness, and glory of God, then, and only then, will you be broken by your sin. It becomes painfully evident that though your actions, your attitudes, your words, though they may not be as bad as some, they still fall short of a God who is thrice holy. You will see how even your lips are unclean because they mirror an unclean heart. Church, we have a seen problem. What we desperately need is a high view of God. Our hearts ought to be heavy over our sins in light of His holiness. That the only words that can leave our lips is, Woe is me! I am a dead man. Isaiah gets it. Do you? Do you see God as holy, holy, holy? Our understanding of God's holiness is extremely practical for everyday life. God charges elsewhere in Scripture, be holy as I am holy. So think about that. Be holy as I am holy. Do you understand what's at stake? If you think God and His holiness to be small and trivial, well then of course your own holiness will be small and trivial. Your own level of holiness corresponds with how holy you see God to be. And let me tell you, Your holiness will never rise above your perception of God's holiness. Without a high view of God, you will have a low view of Christ and the gospel. Without a high view of God, you will have a low view of your sin. And it only makes sense. If God is not thrice holy, then sin is no big deal. You're going to brush off your secret sexual sin. You're going to downplay your crude speech. You're going to minimize your selfishness because you don't see how a holy God does not tolerate sin. It is an offense to who he is. But if you see God as Isaiah sees God, how else can we respond 
but woe is me. And woe are you. God is ready to destroy you for every single lie, every single impure thought, every single prideful look you've had because they all evidence a sinful heart that is an insult to His glory. And the only thing that prevents Him from doing so is not you. It's not me. It's Him. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We find out one of the seraphim takes a burning coal so hot he has to use tongs and press it against Isaiah's unclean lips. That's got to hurt. You know, growing up, if my mom did this, you know, forget washing my mouth out with soap, just bring the burning coal. If my mom employed this discipline method, I would never say a bad word. I would never say a word, period. And now being a father, I am tempted to enforce this discipline, but if I did, I would end up going to jail. So I can't. But we understand the severity of this punishment, of this action. The lips are one of the most sensitive parts of your body. And to have a smoldering coal pushed up against the lips causes the flesh to seethe and sear. The mere thought of it is horrifying, but the graphic picture illustrates how repentance works. It's a painful process. It requires you to confess your wretchedness. It forces you to accept your helplessness. It initiates the sobering acknowledgement that all you deserve before holy God is judgment. Woe is me. I am undone. But the good news is that the story doesn't end there. We have verses 6 and 7. That those who humble themselves before a holy God can have hope in this holy God. God's holiness is a cleansing holiness. And God initiates, intervenes, and burns your sins and saves you. We of all people standing on this side of the cross know this the best. Because God does better than send a seraphim. He sends His own Son to pay the penalty of sin. That if we would repent of our sins and trust and place our faith in Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, then we would be raised to newness of life. And that is good news. For the first time, God's voice is heard in verse 8. Isaiah records, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. From his throne, God asks, he ushers a simple question. Who will tell of what has just transpired? Who will represent holy God before unholy people? Who will listen and live for me? And the obvious answer jumps out to us. It's only expected of one who has witnessed such a traumatic and glorious event. It's only expected of one who has been purged of sin and redeemed. And Isaiah finds it welling up within himself that he can't contain it. He cries out, here am I, send me. It's almost as if God questions Isaiah. And Isaiah turns to command God. God, you have to send me. You are too holy to hide. You are too gracious to to deny. It's automatic for him. Why? 
Well, Isaiah goes from the verge of being demolished by the sheer holiness of God to receiving undeserved cleansing by God's own prerogative. Is there really any choice but to heave himself at the feet of God ready for any service? Is there any alternative for you, for me? Why is it that you try so hard to fit in and win the approval of your friends? Well, it's because you see them as important. And so you listen to them when they tell you to wear certain clothes or speak in a certain manner. Why is it that you spend so much time at work and stress about your projects? Well, it's because you see career as important. And so you will listen to your boss when they tell you how to make it up the ladder. When will you listen and obey God? When you see God as important, when you see God as holy, then you will pursue him by listening, loving, and obeying him. Let me try to illustrate. In the masterpiece, The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes, a character, orchestrates an elaborate plan of revenge after he wrongfully ends up in prison for 14 years. And so Dantes, he escapes by water, and he winds up on an island shore, and there he encounters a group of smugglers. And after a series of events, he duels one-on-one against a man named Jacopo. They're to fight to the death. But this battle ends shortly when Dantes defeats Jacopo. But instead of killing him, Dantes spares Jacopo's life. And to Jacopo, this is absurd, irrational, inexplicable. Jacopo is undone by this act of grace. And so how does he respond? He tells Dantes, I'm your man. I'm your man. Jacopo joyfully vows the remainder of his days to Dantes. Jacopo gets it. It's instinctual for him. The only reason he is standing alive before Dantes is because of Dantes. Were not for the mercy of Dantes, he'd have no life. And in the same, Christian, if you have been where Isaiah has been, if you have felt the pulverizing weight of God's holy and glorious presence with no answer for your sin, and then if you have been lavished by the grace of the gospel, pardoned from eternal death to eternal life, would you not respond in the same way? Would it not be your itching ambition to joyfully dedicate your days to such a good God? Will you not listen to him? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? How can you restrain yourself from crying out, Here am I, send me. Those who have felt the sin-atoning singe of the gospel in their chest are those who are ready to listen and those who are eager to go because you know exactly what's at stake. You've been there. This is a matter of eternal destination and the holiness of God. Who else will go and declare the good news of Jesus Christ? Who else will live a holy life to show that a holy God does exist, that he does reign, and that he alone is God? What other purpose do you have here on earth but to pursue God and bring as many lives as you can with you? You see, even as we peer this weekend into the attributes of God, we're not to just lodge it into the crevices of our brains, but we're, allow, we're, we're to allow these grand, weighty theological truths, this view of God, sink so deeply into our hearts 
it would affect everything about us. It would transform us. That it would be our life declaration to say, here am I, God, send me. Let's pray. Father, there is none holy like you. There's none like you. And Lord, when we are undone by that truth, we tremble before you. We tremble that such a transcendent, holy, majestic God would put up with us and be patient with us, would actually provide a way of relationship through his Son. And Lord, we we tremble as well because of the grace we have been shown that through your Son, our sins can be paid for. You're no longer angry at us, but for those in Christ, we can be adopted into your family, forgiven to have our slates wiped clean. Father, I pray that that reality would be the foundational pillar by which we live our lives, that seeing you for who you are would calibrate how we see ourselves, how we see our lives and the resources that you've given to us, that we would live with one soul consuming ambition as to declare your holiness before the world, before each other. And so, Father, would you continue to prune and refine us, sharpen us, galvanize us, that we might live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Use our small groups, use the conversations and, and the lunch times and the dinner times we have that we might spur each other on towards this end. We pray these things in Jesus' name.